Jeremiah chapter 39. Jerusalem falls and Zedekiah is taken to Babylon. Look at verse one in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it in the 11th year of Zedekiah in the fourth month on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Nergal, Sharetzer, Samgar, Nebo, Sarashim, Rabseres, Nergal, Sarasher, Rabmag with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. So it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them and they fled out and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remain in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing. And gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, take him and look after him and do him no harm. But do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar. Rabseris, Nergal, Sharetzer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in the day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of men of whom you are afraid. For I will deliver you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be a prize to you because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. The 39th chapter describes the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And the chapter will give us a broad picture of the guarantee of God's word in verses 1 through 10, the preservation or deliverance of God's servant in verses 11 through 14, and then the rescue of those who place their trust in the Lord in verses 15 through 18. It may come as a surprise to you, but the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon is described in the 39th chapter of Jeremiah, the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah. It's in the 25th chapter of 2 Kings. It's in the 36th chapter of 2 Chronicles. The Bible devotes way more space to the destruction of Jerusalem than it does to the creation of of the universe. And so right away you should ask yourself the question, why is this? And again, it isn't just simply the historical reality of the destruction of Jerusalem, but the reality of the repeated warnings given by Isaiah and Jeremiah concerning the wickedness of Judah and Jerusalem, that it was going to be punished. And in your mind, you should have a little file category that says the prophecies of God come true. It's sort of like when you were growing up and you watched. The Wizard of Oz, and you remember lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. There's certain sentences that come to your brain that sort of are burned there for all time. The Bible is true. The prophecies of God come true. And the tragedy could have been avoided if even one king of Judah with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind would have turned from his sin and turned to the Lord in humility and submission and said, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to do what God wants. But after repeated warnings, after repeated prophecies, they turned their back on God. They resisted the prophet of God. And they continued in wickedness. I think you know what I'm about to say. Maybe. How did Jeremiah spend his life? Forty years. How does he spend his life? Faithfully. Hearing. Communicating the word of God. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jeremiah spent his life trying to save Jerusalem. Jeremiah spent his life trying to save Jerusalem and save Judea. But Jerusalem will fall and Judea will fall. And some of you might think, what a stupid way to spend your life. How does it make sense that you devote your life to something Or to someone only to see them reject God or reject Christ. You grow up as a mother or as a father. You raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You pour out your heart, your soul, and your mind and your circumstances. You take your gifts and callings and resources and you devote them to people in an attempt to bring them the gospel. And one by one, they turn their back on God and they turn their back on the gospel and they turn their back on Jesus. Jeremiah spent his life trying to save Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will fall. But Jeremiah's life is not a wasted life. 
Because Jeremiah did exactly, exactly, exactly what God wanted him to do. For those of you who have been following along in the book of Jeremiah, you realize that his life is an unfolding picture of highs and lows, but of obedience to God. Now we begin with the destruction. Look again in verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. We've said this over and over again. The siege began on January 15th, 588 B.C. If you want confirmation, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 4, just for a moment. When we come to Jeremiah chapter 52, we will once again visit this now. If it came came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month on that tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. Scholars are split on whether or not Jeremiah is using a Jewish calendar or a Babylonian calendar. It would seem that the collection has taken place During the time of the captivity and Babylon has now significantly begun to influence the people of Judah and Jerusalem concerning the Babylonian calendar. In in other words, they're using a calendar that is a pagan calendar. Both the Hebrew and the Babylonians used a lunar calendar. But it's only at this point that Jews begin to date the months, day one, day two, or month one, month two. But I need you to note the important thing about the passage is that the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem is significant because this is the date that is memorialized For every generation to come, there are certain things that take place in the life of a nation that you remember forever. July 4th, 1776. April 14th, 1865, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. September 11th, 2001. There's certain dates that are burned into your soul. And this date would be burned into the soul of the people of Jerusalem and Judea. Andrew Blackwood in his commentary notes... In post-exilic times, this means after the exile, this is post-Daniel. When the book was reaching its present form, the Hebrews followed the Babylonian custom of numbering the months, and they began with the Babylonian New Year in March or April by our calendar. So the 10th month would be late December or January. The walls of Jerusalem fall in July-August 586, hence the date January 15th. Or July 18th, 586. It says in verse 2, In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. The Babylonians broke through the walls of the capital city on the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah's reign. By the way, according to the Jewish calendar, that same date would be the same date that the Romans would penetrate the Roman walls in 70 A.D. and destroy the temple hundreds of years later on the exact same date. 
Coinkydink. Now, I need you to get a picture here for just a moment. Of the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, there's two and a half years of siege. Terrible conditions existed. Lack of food and water has taken its toll. Most of the people have either fled or starved to death. We know from other passages in Jeremiah 38 and Jeremiah 52, there are there are other scenes that are given of cannibalism where mothers would literally boil their babies in order to try and stay alive. All of the people who were left were on the threshold of starvation. And since the people and the defenses were weak, they could hold little resistance to the invading army. And so you have to understand something that this is a horrible time, a terrible time of tribulation. G. Campbell Morgan writes, we in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the 11th year, the fourth month. The tenth day of the month when God will hurl us from our place of privilege as he certainly will unless we are true to him. In other words, the time was up. The date was established. The thing that the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem was never thought possible was happening. Have you ever thought about the circumstances that might spell The end of the United States of America. I mean, other than a Hollywood fictional movie, other than Planet of the Apes or 2012, where a giant catastrophe takes place and rips the world apart. Have you ever stopped to consider that the world in which you live might radically, fundamentally and dramatically change forever? You know, the people in the former Soviet Union never even imagined for a moment that the former Soviet Union would collapse under the weight of its own corruption and that the satellite states would form independent countries. Argentina never thought that its economy would collapse or Turkey or Greece or Mexico or Germany. Is it possible that the world in which you live and the circumstances that you're experiencing, that there might be a day and a month and a year where everything is different in your life and nothing is the same? That's part of what this passage is talking about. A moment in time and space where the reality of the prophecies of God come true. And in verse 3 it says, Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Nergal, Sher, Samgar, Nebo, Sarsashim, Rabseris, Nergal, Sher, Rabmag, and the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. The day had come, the day that the false prophets declared would never happen. The day for the reason that they stuck Jeremiah in jail. Jeremiah over and over and over and over again repeatedly said the day is coming. The day is coming. The king of Babylon will come. The city will be burnt with fire. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Cry out to him. And now the day was there. And the six princes who are listed aren't that important. Let me put it again in perspective for you. 
these princes have set up their headquarters in the middle gate. We don't know where the middle gate is. But here is the point that you have to understand. The occupying army has established its headquarters in Jerusalem. They've set up a provisional government. And the thing that becomes the most important thing for me and for you is that a prophetic clock is turned on. Have you ever watched people play chess? And sometimes when they'll make move, they'll hit a clock because they're timing their moves. God also has a clock. It's a prophetic clock. And the clock started ticking at this particular moment in time and space. It was the time known as the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles officially began at this particular moment. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, the Lord Jesus will speak about this time. It says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. A Gentile occupying army takes over Jerusalem. In the time of the Gentiles, a clock starts ticking because God has a plan and a purpose for Jerusalem and Judea. And God has a plan and a purpose for the nations and the people of Judah and Jerusalem are moved by captivity into Babylon. It's going to be 70 years, but a clock, a prophetic clock is ticking, ticking, ticking. God is planning. He is punishing. He is unfolding his plans and his purposes to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and they will return back. Back to Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild the wall. But there's going to be an occupying army of Gentiles that continue to control Jerusalem. First by the Babylonians. Then by the Persians. Then by the Greeks. Then by the Romans. And world history will unfold into The first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, all the way to the 19th century and then the 20th century. And in 1967, Jerusalem, which had been occupied by alien armies and Gentiles for the first time in thousands of years is occupied by a free and independent Jewish people. Coincidence? When the clock stops ticking, the period ends, and the Messiah returns to rescue his people and fulfill the prophecies made by the prophets, the time of the Gentiles is spoken of in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, and then the clock starts ticking again upon the execution of the Messiah. It says in verse 4, so it was. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and he went out by way of the plain. In other words, during this time of the siege, the king and what's left of the remnant of his army are planning an escape. Some Bible teachers suggest that the gate, as you see in verse 4, the gate between the two walls may be the current location of the Pool of Siloam. 
It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 11. It's called the fountain gate in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 14. And again, for those of you who are able to make the trip with me to Jerusalem, we find ourselves in this very location where Jesus heals a blind man. But also this is the place where the king is going to escape out of the city, but his escape is going to be short lived. In verse 5 it says, but the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook Zedekiah on the plains of Jericho. And when they captured him, they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. In other words, this half-starved army makes their way all the way down to Jericho. The, the, The Babylonian army captures him and then they're going to transport him to Riblah. You may not know where Ribla is, but it is a town that's located some 200 miles north of Jerusalem. Ribla was the Egyptian headquarters where Jehoahaz was captured in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 33. It's been identified by archaeologists today as Ribla on the banks of the Orontes in what was called the Plain of Coal, Syria, between Lebanon and the anti-Lebanon mountains. Now, if you go to this particular place on the river, it is a perfect military encampment and it's a relay station for the north which is Syria, the south, which is Egypt, the east, which is Babylon and Persia, and the west, which goes across the Straits of the Bosphorus into the opposite direction of the Macedonian Empire. In other words, this is the four corners. If you grew up in the southwest like me, there's two intersections of I-25 and I-40 in Albuquerque. And when you're a kid growing up, Bugs Bunny would always say, I should have turned left when I got to Albuquerque because you can go north, south, east, west. Everyone going across the country will eventually typically go through Albuquerque. Everyone in the Middle East would typically go to this particular place Whether you were going north, south, or east, or west. And this is why the king of Babylon has headquartered in this particular place in order to pronounce judgment on the wicked, weasel, coward king, Zedekiah. By the way, has Zedekiah been warned over and over and over again? Yes. Please. The city can be spared. The nation can be spared. You can be spared. But he refused to hear the promises of the man of God and the word of God. And now judgment day has come for the king of Jerusalem. It says in verse six, then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. In other words, some of the very last things that the wicked Coward King Zedekiah witnessed was the execution of his own children. One by one, they were brought out and they were slaughtered before him. Then he killed all the nobles of Judah, the entourage that tried to escape the judgment of God are going to fall prey. 
It says in verse 7, Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and he bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. The last vision of the coward king is the execution of his family by his enemies. And the last vision was the pronouncement of his guilt. And then the king plunged him into a permanent darkness. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like a future judgment that is also going to take place on a group of people who have rejected God and rejected Christ and rejected the gospel? That they're going to stand before a true and a living God. Jesus talks about people going to a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This king exchanges his gold crown for brass chains where he's going to be carried off to Babylon. You know what? In the Bible, the king of Babylon is often a type and a picture of the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world, his judgment, bind him, blind him. Isn't that exactly what the devil does? He binds you in the chains of sin and he blinds you to the consequences of sin. And you think that your chains are something to be proud of. But the devil, he incarcerates, he incapacitates. By the way, in the Bible, a lack of vision is often a precursor to doom in Proverbs 29, 18. The forerunner of disaster in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. A night of darkness, Micah chapter 3, verse 6. A sign of spiritual declension in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. The evidence of lukewarmness in sacred or divine things. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, when Jesus is speaking, he says, you think that you're rich and you think that you have everything that you, that you need, but you you are blind and you are naked. And so sometimes darkness is pictured as a state of unbelief. That's how it's spoken of in Romans chapter 11 verses 8 and 9. When Paul speaks of the Jews who are blind to the reality of the identity of Jesus. You know, I came across a letter published in Pravda in 1950. This was a letter that was distributed to Russians. If you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him, Stalin, and you will find the confidence you need. If you feel tired in an hour when you should not, Think of him, of Stalin, and your work will go well. If you are seeking correct decision, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find that decision. Really? Can you imagine that's the world you're living in? Where your hopes, your dreams, your character, your confidence, your world is built on the leadership of Stalin. But that's exactly the way many people are in this world. 
They think that they can have strength and joy and confidence and meaning and value apart from God and apart from Christ. But is there really value and meaning apart from Jesus? What a delusion. The king Zedekiah, weak and cowardly, thought that he could arrange his own future and live a life apart from God. By the way, Zedekiah will die in Babylon in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13. And look at the pronouncement. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Do you remember when we were studying earlier in Jeremiah chapter 32? If you just flip back to chapter 32, we've already covered verse 31, but I'm going to read it again. In Jeremiah 32, 31, it says, For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face. God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. It's going to happen. The things that I've said are are going to come true. They're going to come true. Again, remember, God sends Jeremiah Warning them over and over again. And again, for us, God sends Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. God sends Paul. God sends Peter. God sends James. They write in the New Testament. Encouragement after encouragement. Warning after warning. That this world that you see and the world that you live in and the world that you're surrounded by, that the world is fading and passing. The flower grows, the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. You're living in a world and you see things come and you see things go. And some of you are old enough to remember 19 and 33. And you're old enough to remember 19 and 43. And then 1953 and 1963 and 1973 and 1983 and you and then all of a sudden it's 2003 and just in a few months it's going to be 2013. Some of you might live three score and ten. But the grass is going to grow. The clouds are going to clear. And there will come a day, a month, and a year where the sum and the substance of all of your life will pass away and you will enter into eternity. Jeremiah warned that Jerusalem would be captured and destroyed. He did it in chapter 6, verse 6. He did it in chapter 19, verse 8. Then he repeated it in verse 11 and 12. He did it in chapter 21, verse 10. In chapter 26, verse 6. In chapter 27, verse 17. Here in chapter 39, you would think that many warnings, people would go, Hey, it isn't like Jeremiah didn't give us a heads up. And the armies pillaged the city. 
And even though the text doesn't tell us, we know that they removed the precious objects from the temple and they carried them away from Babylon. We know that from Daniel. And they literally one month after the judgment was rendered to Zedekiah, King Nebuchadnezzar orders everything to be burned to the ground. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, it it repeats what has happened. It's repeated again in chapter 52, verses 4 through 15. The Bible gives us this picture of total devastation. In 2 Kings 25, 9, it says, All the houses of Jerusalem, every great house, he burned down. Do you realize that there is an army of archaeologists who spend their life Digging up the ruins above and below the burn line of the Romans, above and below the burn line of Nebuchadnezzar. The reason the prophecy is true, the fulfillment is true, and this should cause each and every one of you. Again, with the mental card catalog in your mind, when God says something, it comes to pass. If God says that he's going to do something, you can guarantee that he will. Then in verse 9, the Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remain in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remain. The name Nebuzaradan means... Nebo has offspring and Nebo is a Chaldean or a Babylonian deity. And then it says in verse 10, but Nebu, Zaradon, the captain of the guard in the land of Jude, left in the land of Judah, the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. For Nebuchadnezzar, as he is expanding the kingdom, having a devastated and a decimated property has no value. So he leaves the poorest of the poor in order to till the land. He leaves it with a group of people who are going to be familiar with the agricultural circumstances so that it can generate some sort of income. We often think of judgment delayed as judgment averted. But again, when God says that a judgment is coming, the judgment is going to happen. The Lord promised that his hand of judgment would fall on the city and the people and the king and the city fell. But again, at this point, you go, we know, we know, Gino, we know, we know. Do you know, again, I need to remind you, why did the city fall? Because of the people's sin, because of their wickedness, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. Why does this matter to you? Because you might wake up one morning and think that wickedness and sin and rebellion and disobedience doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're living in an age of grace. We're living in a in a day and a time when Jesus is the Lord. And all of that is true. And grace is true. And freedom in Christ is true. And forgiveness is true. But sometimes we make decisions apart from God and apart from Christ, and it hurts us terribly. 
It hurts our family and it hurts our marriage and it hurts our ministry. And we tuck in the back of our mind the fact that God's grace and that God's mercy and that God's love will somehow find a way and steer us away from the destruction of the wickedness of the very bad decisions that we've made. I need you to understand something. The judgment of God will fall on us if we refuse the Lord Jesus, if we reject the Lord Jesus. People curse God. They curse his name. They reject him. They reject his words and they reject his commands. And far too many people are living completely in oblivion of God's word and God's love. Most people are at home watching the Hatfields and McCoys on the History Channel. Do you understand that in their mind and in their heart, they're not meditating on the word of God and the plan of God and the prophecies of God and the future that God has ordained? You know, the New Testament says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Just like Jerusalem was appointed to be overrun and destroyed and rebuilt and overrun, destroyed. There's an appointment that the United States of America has with God. There's an appointment that the state of Colorado has with God. There's an appointment that the city of Denver has with God. There's an appointment that this community has with God. There's an appointment that God has established with each and every one of you. Jesus said in Matthew 16:27, "For the Son of man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels." And he shall reward every man according to his works. But the vast majority of people living in this community and living in this state and living in this nation and living in this world, they do not believe the words of Jesus. But you do. When Jesus says, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works, it should motivate me and it should motivate you that your life matters, your ministry matters, your marriage matters. All of those things matter to God. And there's deliverance for the man of God. Look what it says in verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah. To Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. Now, you need to think about this for a moment. The king of Babylon is aware of Jeremiah. How does he know about Jeremiah? Nebuchadnezzar knows about Jeremiah because some people apparently have gone and they said there's this crazy guy inside of the city who has urged everyone in the city to give up and hand themselves over to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, that's a smart man. 
Think about how much pain and how much sorrow and how much death and how much horror could be avoided. This sounds like a guy who understands what he's talking about. And so the king gives specific orders regarding Jeremiah to the head of his guard. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. If the king of Babylon and the chief of his security detail says, whatever you do, don't harm Nebuchadnezzar or don't harm Jeremiah, what do you suppose is going to happen? No harm is going to come to Jeremiah because the stupid person who decides to violate the chief of security and the king, what will happen to the person who decides to take it on themselves to kill Jeremiah? Yeah. Can you guys read sign language? They're not going to survive. When Jeremiah was discovered among the survivors of the siege of the king, he orders his preservation and his care. And Nebuzaradan is in charge of the guard and Jeremiah is not to be hard harmed. So the Lord made sure that the highest official in the land would find him, set him free and make sure no harm comes to him. Again, why does this matter to you? Because your father is in heaven. And the true king of the universe is your Lord and your savior. Is it possible that the devil can come and say, I want him and I want her? You'll remember Jesus. Remember, he says concerning Peter, he says, remember, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. You should take great comfort in that. The reason why you should take great comfort in that is because the devil can't do anything to you. Unless your Lord allows it. The Bible says that every hair on your head is numbered. Now, that's not such a supernatural feat for some of you sitting here in this audience. Some of you might think, well, that's pretty easy to do with me. But the whole point comes that God is interested in the intimate details of your life and he knows the intimate details of your life. The Lord made sure that the highest official in the land would find him, set him free and no harm would come to him and make no mistake about it. That God will make sure that you're in the exact position that you need to be in. Look what it says in verse 12. Take him and look after him and do no harm to him, but do to him just as he says to you. In other words, take care of him. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard in verse 13, sent Nebuchadnezzar, Rabseris, Nergal, Shadatzer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. I'm going to suggest to you that if these are proper names, I'm I'm I almost am certain that they're not proper names, but that they're titles that are given to important people in the king's cabinet. And in verse 14, then it says, then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take care of him. So he dwelt among the people. Now, you have to understand the prophet Jeremiah is remanded into this custody of Gedaliah, who will, by the way, later be made the provisional governor under the Babylonian authority. We know that from chapter 40, verse 7. We haven't gotten there yet, but some of you have. And so this Gedalia is not the same Gedalia who wanted to kill Jeremiah in chapter 38, verse 1. 
Just because people have the same name in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean they're the same person. Like, as you can imagine, there's John the Baptist and there's John the Apostle. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so sometimes you can stumble over these names because you think, hey, didn't I read about this guy in chapter 38? And didn't he hate Jeremiah's guts? Different Gedalia. Never mind. By the way, Gedalia will establish his headquarters in Mitzpah after the destruction of the city where Ishmael will assassinate him. That will take place in chapter 40. It's also found in 2 Kings chapter 25. His father, Ahikam, befriends Jeremiah in chapter 26. Two of his uncles are mentioned with deep respect in chapter 29, verse 3, and in chapter 36, verse 10. So apparently this is a well-connected family. Jeremiah will be given the choice to go to Babylon or remain in the care of the king or remain with the people of Judea. And rather than go to Babylon and live out the rest of his life in, in custody, but in, in care, he will elect to stay in Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area. And he will help cultivate the land and provide the seed to rebuild the nation. I need to ask you a hard question. It's actually an easy question. And you're a smart group of people. Who treated Jeremiah better? His family or the Babylonians? Go ahead. Yeah. Doesn't that bother you just a little bit? Just a tiny bit? Jeremiah devotes his life to save them. Jeremiah devotes his ministry to making sure that they hear the word of God and they understand the word of God in the hopes that maybe, maybe they will turn from their sin and they'll embrace the promise of God. But for the most part, they don't. And the enemy, the Babylonians, the Gentiles, they show up and they treat him with respect and they treat him with dignity does it ever concern you that sometimes unbelievers treat you better than believers do? Does it concern you that you will get more dignity and respect and civil discourse from a person who doesn't even name the name of Jesus than you get from your own brothers and sisters, than you get from your own family and friends? Jeremiah is going to devote his life to these men and women. And we see in the deliverance and the preservation of Jeremiah, the sovereign and saving work of God as God exercises supreme power and taking care of his dear, dear servant. But this becomes a type and a picture for you, because you see, the truth is, even in the midst of judgment, God takes care of the people who love him and trust him. 
whether we're experiencing hardship or pain or suffering or trial or temptation or misfortune. Chet sort of alluded to it when we were doing worship that we have a God. We have a God who tenderly, mercifully, generously thinks about you on on a daily basis, and he is looking to take care of you. He's looking to minister to you. He's looking to provide for you. And we will trust the Lord, or we won't. But here's what I guarantee you, that if you trust the Lord, he will either deliver you in the time of trial, or he will deliver you through the time of trial. Either way. The Lord will take care of you. This is going to be perfectly illustrated later on when Daniel's friends are taken into a fiery furnace. And this same Nebuchadnezzar will say, look, I'm going to heat up the furnace three times hotter than it's supposed to be because you're making a big mistake. You need to bow down before me. And they said, look, whatever happens, we're either going to be delivered in the flame or we're going to be delivered from you, O king. Do you understand what's the worst possible thing that can happen if your body gives out and it stops working? Whatever becomes the instrument of your death becomes the very ticket into paradise. In Luke's gospel, we're told... In Luke chapter 12, verse 7, but even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of way more value than birds. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Jeremiah has been a faithful man. And he's been treated unjustly and unfairly. And wickedly by the people who should have cared for him the most. And then we get this little tiny picture of Ebed, Melech. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison saying, Go and speak to Ebed, Melech, the Ethiopian. You remember him from the last chapter? Remember what Ethiopian means? It means the man of the people from the land of the burnt face. This is a black man. He is an official. In the king's court, he serves faithfully and dutifully both the king and Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon the city for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in the day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. Verse 18, for I will surely deliver you and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you because you put your trust in me, says the Lord. Now, I want you to remember, Ebed Melech is given three special promises. Number one, he's going to live to see the day of God's judgment. In other words, here's the promise of God. Ebed Melech. You're going to live to see the truth that God's word comes true. That's verse 16. Number two, he's going to be saved from the coming judgment and he's going to escape capture in verse 17. And that he's going to be saved from death by God himself in verse 18. Now, remember in the last chapter, 
Ebed-Melech sought to rescue Jeremiah from the pit and to save Jeremiah from starvation in chapter 38, verses 7 through 9. Remember, we've already talked about how Jesus acts to deliver us from the pit and judgment. And Ebed-Melech acts according to the word of the king. And Ebed-Melech provides the means to rescue Jeremiah from the miry pit. But Ebed-Melech isn't saved just because he was a cool guy. Because he was a courageous man. He was cool. And he was courageous. And he was compassionate. And he was filled with conviction. But none of those are reasons why God saved him. The reason is found in verse 18. He saved him. Because he trusted the Lord. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a principle. People aren't saved by courage and they're not saved by compassion and they're not saved by conviction and they're not saved by goodness and they're not saved because of personal personal righteousness. People are saved because they trust in the Lord. You should be really glad about that. Because sometimes you might be a little bit afraid. And sometimes you might not be as cool as you wished you were. And sometimes you may not be as compassionate as you'd like to be. But salvation comes when we place our confidence in Christ. You know, I grew up in a small Mojave town where a railroad split the desert community. You know, you've heard the expression about being born on one side of the tracks and the other side of the tracks. There was the side of the tracks where the prosperous people lived, and then there was the side of the tracks where we lived. You know what an Italian ghetto is called. It's a spaghetto. That's where the poor Italian people live. But when we would cross the tracks, there was a sign that was posted. And the sign said, listen and look. Now, what do you suppose in the middle of the desert, there would be a sign that says, listen and look. Because is it possible that the train could come and if you're not looking And if you're not paying attention, you could get hurt. You know what the sad truth is? Many people died on those railroad tracks, crossing at a time because they weren't listening and they weren't looking. They weren't paying attention. And we're living in a world that isn't listening to the word of God. And they're not looking to the Savior. And so it could very well be that Jesus provides you to be a voice and a picture of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. But remember, you're saved not because of courage, not because of conviction, and not because of compassion. But because you trust in the Lord this week, I read a story of St. Francis of Assisi, who is 
at the risk of his life, he went to go speak to some of the followers of the Sultan. He was a person deeply committed to witnessing to Muslims. And he found himself in the presence of the Sultan. Sire, said the number of imams, the priests of Islam. Thou art expert in the law and art bound to maintain and guard it. We command thee by Muhammad who gave it to us that the heads of these men be cut off. In other words, the Muslim priest said, let's kill Francis. Now, Francis, who had already been fearless yet loving in his Christ-like spirit in order to bring the gospel of Jesus, made a deep impression upon the sultan. And he spoke to the sultan and he said, your priests will not talk with me. Perhaps they're ready to act. Assisi, Francis of Assisi, invited the sultan to build a fire and fill the flames. And Francis of Assisi said, your highness, I will go into the flames with your priests. And we will see who is the true God and what is the true religion. Assisi said, Have a fire lighted. I will go into the fire with them and you will see by the results which faith is true and which faith is holy. And when Francis issued, (laughs) when he issued this challenge, the Muslim priest slipped away. (laughs) The idea of actually putting God to the test filled them with horror. And the sultan said sarcastically, I don't think any of my priests are inclined to face flames and torture for the defense of their faith. In the real world, in which we live, there may come a point where the most important thing that you could ever do is remind your family and to remind your friends To put God to the test. If Jesus is Lord and if he can forgive sin and if he can reconcile you to the father. If Jesus can wash you and cleanse you and purify you and save you. Put him to the test. See whether or not what the Bible says is true. Because make no mistake about it, you will trust someone and something for your future. You will either trust this world and its promises or Jesus and his promises. What's the most important thing about this destruction of Jerusalem that we keep reading about over and over again. The prophet prophesies. And it comes true. What it should do is provoke inside of your heart the knowledge that every single thing that God says in Christ will happen. You can trust him. That's chapter 39. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the word made flesh. And Lord, I pray that perhaps some man or some woman will put you to the test. That if Jesus really is Jesus, and if 
the Bible is really the Bible. And if it's really true that you can experience God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's healing and God's redemption. Put him to the test. Walk into the fire. And see whether or not you'll be delivered in it. Or you'll be delivered through it. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women of courage and conviction and compassion. But most of all, Lord, that we will be men and women who trust Jesus no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.